0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 5th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. You'll be pleased to know we're not going to talk about Ukraine, and we're not going to talk about Roe versus Wade and abortion, but there is another subject, which in some ways is even more depressing than those two. It's the story of immigration. Um, And we've done a couple of shows about that over the last year. We did one with the American journalist, Timer Cormac on... um, on refugee resettlement from Africa. He has a very interesting new book out, Beyond the Sand and Sea, One Family's Quest for a Country to Call Home. It's not entirely pessimistic, although it's a troubling book. I also did a a, a show earlier this year, particularly depressing one with the Irish journalist Sally, Sally Hayden, on the 21st century slave trade in the Mediterranean. She has a particularly troubling book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. Both the Hayden and the McCormack books, though, are those of a traditional journalist covering uh, what it's like to be a migrant. Uh, My conversation today is with the co-author of a book called border hacker, uh, Levi Vonk. Uh, It's a tale of treachery, trafficking and two friends on the run. And it's um, a story quite different, I think, from McCormack and Hayden, because it comes from the perspective of uh, someone who actually experienced what it's like to be a migrant um, on the US southern border. Levi Vonk is joining us from an undisclosed location, because as he told me before uh, we went on air, he's had some death threats. Uh, Levi, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, And congratulations uh, on this new book, Border Hacker, which you wrote with Axel Kirshner, who we'll talk about later uh, in the show. Uh, Tell me about these death threats. Uh, who, who, Who has been threatening you, and why would a book elicit death threats?
1: Yeah, well, we don't know for sure who is threatening Axel and I, but um, we believe uh, it's probably one of the four humanitarian activists who are exposed in Border Hacker. Um, Border Hacker Profiles, it's really an exploration of uh, the friendship between Axel and I, who's my co-author. He's an, he's an undocumented Central American migrant and computer hacker. Um, and During Axel's journey, he actually kind of got sucked into this very nefarious humanitarian network, a group of people professing to help migrants in in Mexico. But actually, it's much more complicated than that. So our book actually exposes four prominent humanitarian activists as uh, essentially frauds and crooks. And we believe that one of them, uh, shortly before our book was released, got wind of what was in the book and sent a death threat uh, threatening. Uh, I'm sorry it's so crude, but threatening to kill Axel, hack his body to pieces and leave it in the trash, which is a common um, cartel killing tactic in Mexico where you don't just kill someone, but you mutilate their body afterwards as well. And so for that reason, um, we are trying to lay low a little bit. Um, but of course, we want our message to, to uh, still be broadcast far and wide if possible.
0: So Levi, this book um, is about the caravan, this infamous caravan that everyone's heard of, but no one knows really the details. You participated in it a peculiar way. You're a grad student at Berkeley in anthropology, as we discussed beforehand. So you're an academic or a budding Mm -hmm. academic, and yet you found yourself, and this is the, the core story in Border Hacker, caught up in human trafficking. Tell me your story and and how you became involved in all
1: this. (laughs) Yeah. So the book starts when I'm a very bright eyed and bushy tailed 24 year old. I had recently gotten a research grant to go down to Mexico to work with Central American migrants. But at the time, I did not have any anthropological training. I didn't have any journalistic training, um, but I went to go volunteer in a migrant shelter. And this was in 2015. And someone invited me to join this thing called a migrant caravan. Um, and at the time, believe it or not, there was a time before we understood what caravans were, right There was a time before Trump vilifying caravans, and so someone said, Do "You want to join this thing i didn't know what it was. The next thing I know i 'm marching down the road with hundreds of other Central American migrants charging through immigration checkpoints um and it was a really eye opening experience for me i, I yeah you wrote
0: re- an interesting piece. People can look it up from twenty eighteen in the Guardian. Uh, I march with a migrant caravan. Donald Trump has it all wrong. What was that migrant, migrant caravan like?
1: Well, it, uh, first of all, it's you know, filled with incredibly desperate people fleeing violence and poverty in their home countries. Um, and so I felt that when Donald Trump vilified these caravans um, as you know, full of criminals and whatever else, it was a really reductionist um, kind of approach. Uh, but, but my experience... Was um, you know that I, I was traveling with these incredibly desperate people who were trying to survive by any means necessary, and that included banding up together, um, traveling through immigration, charging through immigration checkpoints, running from police. Um, it was quite a, an eye-opening experience. Uh,
0: Levi, um, this is a caravan that what went from Guatemala through Mexico. Uh, what what about Honduras and? Did it pick up steam as it went further
1: north, as it got closer to the U.S. border? Sure. So our caravan, because it was in 2015, this was really the first caravan before uh, 2015. Um, Caravans were kind of very minor, quiet affairs, believe it or not. They're generally run by priests and they were more of a kind of pacifist statement made over Holy Week of Easter Sunday in Mexico. Um, But this was the first caravan uh, that was led exclusively by activists. It was a secular caravan, and it had a much more openly political bent. So at the time, the United States had just made a secret pact with Mexico called the Southern Border Program. And the idea was to externalize its border into Mexico and to stop Central American migrants from arriving at the U.S. and asking for asylum at all costs. So the idea of this caravan was to expose that secret pact. Um, and try to get people talking about it. So why was it a
0: a secret pact? This was in the the Trump administration. Why wouldn't they have made it publicly?
1: This is actually under the Obama administration. So what had happened in 2014 was that 70,000 unaccompanied minors had made their way, fled violence in Central America in places like Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala and made their way to the US to ask for asylum. And it caused a really big headache for the Obama administration because if they accepted these children, they were gonna get criticism from Republicans saying that you know, they're allowing these immigrants to come in and take advantage of our social services. But if they didn't allow them in, then Democrats would have criticized the Obama administration as being heartless. So instead, a solution was found in which uh, the Obama administration struck a secret pact with Mexico to catch and deport um, women and children, especially because they were the ones who were sympathetic Um, on the TV channels, right, Um, to try to deport them before they could get to the US and cause a media frenzy. So that's how it all started, actually.
0: Uh, You mentioned some of the organizers. I know you write about a man called Alejandro Solalinde Guerra, uh, a, a Catholic priest and human rights champion. Was he particularly important
1: in this caravan? He was. um, He was one of the eventual leaders of the caravan. He stepped in after um, the caravan was basically surrounded by immigration and police forces uh, in southern Mexico and threatened with deportation. At the time, it was an incredibly shocking thing. We now see this happening all the time with migrant caravans. Of course, we get all these brutal images of violence and police contestation. But uh, this was the first caravan to ever have something like that happen. So uh, Solalinde actually intervened uh, and tried to negotiate with the Mexican government for safe passage. Um, but you're but,
0: but but again, Levi, you are an American uh, citizen. You obviously have a U.S. passport. How did you get involved in this?
1: I was actually volunteering at Solalinde's uh, migrant shelter before, uh, and I was invited to join the caravan uh, while doing research, conducting research with Central Americans, um, with some of the other organizers of the caravan who themselves were former migrants. So they invited me to join. Um, and at the time I was partly a researcher, but I wasn't in a PhD program yet. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was a very young person. I was looking for a cause and having been invited on this, I thought, why not? I'll join. Let's see what it's all about. And but I got Join
0: means what, um,
1: walk with everybody, organize, feed people, raise money? All of that. Um, I, I walked with everyone every step of the way on the caravan. Uh, it eventually it made its way from the Guatemalan border all the way to Mexico City, and it actually disbanded in Mexico City. But um, I also cooked and cleaned in the migrant shelters. Uh, I was there to listen to people's stories and record them and try to write about them later on. Um, so I, I, I kind of had a I found myself in a strange position where I wasn't exactly a journalist and I wasn't exactly an activist. I was something in between a little bit. Um, and I hope that Axel and I, while we were writing this book, we wanted to explore that in-betweenness, this not fitting in perfectly to being a journalist, not fitting perfectly into being an activist, but trying to get a message out there that goes beyond any normal kind of sense of professional boundaries.
0: And you've introduced the great Mystery in this narrative and in your book, a man called Axel Kirshner. Tell me about Axel and tell me why he's not joining us in this
1: conversation. Axel can't join today, also because of the death threats that we've received. So, um, Axel is uh, an undocumented Guatemalan migrant who I met on that caravan in 2015. And uh, while we started traveling together, I realized that something was different about Axel. I couldn't put my finger on it at first, um, but then I realized um, that Axel was very good with computers, too good with computers almost. And when we were surrounded by the police and immigration during this migrant caravan, suddenly our cell phones stopped working, our computers stopped working, our Wi-Fi stopped working. We, we couldn't get messages out. We thought uh, deportation was imminent, a raid was coming. coming. And Axel told me, I need a computer. I need a computer right now. And I said, why, why, why? And he said, I, I can fix this. I can fix this. Well, he disappears for several hours. And next thing I know, the cell phone signal is back online. I said, what happened? What did you do? And he said, I figured out how to hack around the police jammer. And that was the moment I learned that Axel was a, a, not just a migrant, but a hacker.
0: A hacker. Yeah. And according to Wikipedia is a hacker is a person skilled in information technology who uses their technical knowledge to achieve a goal or overcome an obstacle. Why aren't there any photos of Axel in
1: this book? I've been looking for photos. I haven't been I would, able to found any. I would love to have photos in the book of Axel, um, with, uh, in the book with Axel, um, but Uh, it was decided for whatever reason during the publishing process that they wouldn't be included. That wasn't really my decision, but I post plenty of of photos of Axel on my social media accounts. We always place a black bar over his eyes for his anonymity. Um, And I'm also a photojournalist, And so I I have a photo exhibition that I'm curating now uh, that has hundreds of photos of Axel over the course of the last seven years together, uh, documenting his entire journey from Guatemala all the way up to the US Mexico border.
0: So this is a story, it's called Border Hacker, a tale of treachery, track of trafficking and two friends on the run. What's the message, Levi? It's it's not really an adventure story, it's a moral tale. What are you trying to tell people about this world, this unimaginably miserable world and violent world that you became involved in?
1: Yeah, Andrew, it sounds, you know, like uh, you know, you've had a couple other people on, or often when we, when we talk about migration, it's an incredibly violent, miserable, and tragic story. And that's true. Um, and Axel's story in some sense is no different. But what we wanted to communicate in this book together um, is that uh, you don't have to be passive. Migrants certainly aren't passive. They're organizing to join migrant caravans. They're fighting for their rights. And um, we wanted to depict in our book as well, that this kind of traditional journalistic response in which you kind of passively and objectively tell someone else's story in the third person was not our story. We were trying to work together to find a solution for Axel. He's a stateless person, but he's also a hacker. He looks for solutions. And our book is often about how you can resist and fight back even in moments of misery and hopelessness.
0: So Axel is a stateless person in the sense where he lost his Guatemalan citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, And obviously he doesn't have U.S. citizenship. So he's living somewhere in Mexico or somewhere else without papers.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't uh, disclose where he's living right now. But um, because he's stateless, no matter where he is, he's living without papers. So after he was deported from the U.S. at the age of 35, he grew up in New York City. He considered himself a New Yorker. He'd lived there almost his entire life. When he was deported to Guatemala, he was told by Guatemalan officials that a hurricane many years previous had destroyed all record of his his existence. So he wasn't Guatemalan either. Um, And so because of that, he's had to figure out an alternative means of existing and and making a life for himself. And that's how he turned to hacking.
0: And you dedicate the book to Axel's children, wherever they may be. How many
1: children Mm -hmm. does he have? Axel has two children, uh, a boy and a girl. Uh, He says that when he was deported, he was actually driving his son to kindergarten. His son was six years old at the time. He had another daughter who was two. Um, And since his deportation, he has not seen them. And that's seven years ago. And he was deported for what, political activism in Guatemala? No, no. He was was driving his son to kindergarten in, in Long Island, New York. And he was actually rear-ended uh, by a woman. Oh yeah, a... so
0: exactly. So sorry, I, I apologize. So no He was he was um, undocumented in the United States, and he was thrown out.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: Uh, yeah. And but where was he from before before he came to the U.S.?
1: He was born in Guatemala during the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, his mother, uh, as as he writes in the book, his, his mother was actually raped by a soldier uh, when she was 14 years old and had to flee. So she gave birth to Axel and then she crossed into the United States. She was only 14 years old at the time and resettled in New York. Axel was just a baby. He was one. And so he had no memory of Guatemala. He had no idea what that place was like. Um, it was not his country at all. Uh, and then he was deported for the first time at the age of 35. And he was deported to to Guatemala,
0: yes. Uh, you begin the book with a quote from Claude Levi Strauss. Uh, I have I hate traveling and explorers.
1: Mm-hmm. Why do you begin with that quote? It's a uh, because I'm an anthropologist. Um, I, I Claude Levi Strauss is also an anthropologist. And uh, it's a very famous quote within anthropology because it, Levi Strauss, it, it's from his, his uh, famous book, Triste Tropique, uh, in which he recounts his own journeys and travels to Brazil as a young anthropologist. So I was kind of playing into that, that this is kind of my version of that. This is my first kind of traveling abroad. But his, his whole point when he says, I hate traveling and explorers and then immediately kind of tells you this, this travel chronicle What he's getting at is a little tongue-in-cheek in in which he's saying anthropology is not just traveling, it's not just here to take pictures and it's not just here to have an adventure, but the anthropological goal is to learn something and have a connection with others that you would otherwise never meet. And and that was what I was hoping to portray in our our book as well, that, that my goal was not simply to travel or to have an adventure, but to tell a story about two people, Axel and me, who couldn't be more different on paper, but who still share something in the end.
0: You went on many physical adventures with Axel. What about the adventure of writing a book? How exciting was that together? How, how did you <laughs> divide the labor? It was,
1: <laughs> it, was uh, um, it was it was very difficult. You know, I I had never written a book before, and Axel hadn't either. And um, originally when I, when we first had this idea of maybe we can write a book together um, maybe, maybe something can come out of this. What I'd been doing was interviewing Axel long interviews every day um, and then transcribing them. And when I sat down to write the book, I did it in a very traditional way um, in which I was telling it from my perspective and then quoting Axel where appropriate, but it just felt wrong. You know, obviously I'm a white guy from the U S and an academic and all that. And Axel is this Afro Latino, New York hustler uh it just felt a little clunky um and so we started trying to rethink the nonfiction craft while we were writing the book and realized very quickly that the biggest problem was that the book only had one narrator which is very normal in nonfiction books of course but but we realized we needed two axel's voice was good enough on his own in fact not just good enough but the best part of the book in my opinion are all of the passages written in axel's voice so when we started sitting down together And taking those transcribed interviews, rearranging them, re-editing them and rewriting them together and then allowing them to sit on the page next to my narration as well and speak back and forth to each other, we discovered we'd, we'd figured out something a little novel in nonfiction. As far as we know, no one else has really done this in mainstream nonfiction before, but it allows Axel to tell his story in his own words rather than me just telling them. And we think it's a much more rich way to kind of tell our story, that it allows for a different kind of exchange within a book, than what's traditionally happened in uh in non levi if
0: cloud levi strauss wrote read your book or other academic anthropologists what could they learn i mean it's clearly an adventure story a story of treachery trafficking perhaps it could be made into a movie but is there an academic and intellectual message
1: Absolutely, I think so. You know, I I write at the end of the book in in the the kind of end notes that this book is not um, anthropological in a traditional sense, but it is in the service of anthropology. Um, I deeply believe in anthropology and the anthropological method, but I think anthropologists, we need to face it, these last few decades, we have not been very good about marketing what we do and why we do it to the broader public. We're very insular. We have our own kind of language. And what I hope to do with this book is to show um, the benefits of anthropology to people who maybe are not even anthropologists, to show what we can learn that, that journalists, for instance, maybe go in and try to tell a story, but they usually have a very finite amount of time to tell it, maybe a weekend, maybe a week, maybe a couple weeks at most, right? But anthropologists get to be on the ground for months or years at a time, living alongside people, trying to not just observe, but to participate in their lives as well. And I think today that has a real value, you get a much richer and deeper story. And I was hoping to communicate to anthropologists that, of course, we can do the academic thing, and it's incredibly important to do it. But there's this whole other element that remains untapped, which is just sharing our emotional experiences and relationships with the people who we live alongside.
0: Levi, I don't want to endanger you or or Axel for that matter, but you mentioned at the beginning that you've had death threats. Is that because the book shows the corruption of of many of the organizers of of these caravans? What exactly is going on and who should and shouldn't we trust? You're a man on the ground. You can tell us.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's exactly it. The question becomes very quickly for Axel and I in the book, who can we trust and who who we can't? Um, And I think it's a complicated question. The organizers of the caravan, particularly there's a man named Irineo Mujica, who we talk about in the book, who um, at the time uh, in this caravan that we joined in 2015, he's the main organizer, but he's a kind of small time unknown activist. He eventually becomes probably the most famous caravan organizer. Any caravan that you've heard of in the United States is probably a caravan that Irineo Mujica has organized. but throughout the book, Axel and I begin to realize that things are not all, you know, th- there's not what they seem with some of these, these migrant activists that actually um, uh, donations that are, you know, donated and collected from all over the world start to go missing. Um, they aren't apportioned to migrants as they should be. Uh, Axel at one point in the book is actually kidnapped by uh, a migrant activist and forced to hack other um. Mexican government officials um, for that activist benefit so people who are often professing to be um, migrant activists and helping migrants are actually sometimes the very people exploiting them. The book um, Levi uh,
0: is historical in the sense that it's not dealing with the, the current situation, Uh, on on the so-called southern border. I'm not sure I like that term. Lots of articles, though, about the end of Title 42. Um, uh, Mayorkas, the Homeland Security uh, Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, was on all the talk shows at the weekend. What's the current situation? And what should we be focusing on and prioritizing if we care about the victims of all this, the migrants themselves? How are we gonna deal with this problem? Or is it simply a problem that cannot be dealt with, that can't be fixed? It seems every administration from the Obama administration
1: onwards has failed to address this crisis. They've certainly failed to address it, but I don't think it's a problem that can't be fixed. I am admittedly very much an idealist and an optimist. I believe in a kind of radical, Insistence on idealism, even when the practical nature of the solution is going to take years or decades to solve. But the fact of the matter is, the big problem here is that the US border has become militarized, right? And it became militarized at a certain historical point, we can pinpoint it, which is the late 1980s, and then especially ramps up in the 1990s after the passage of NAFTA, uh, right? And so, so the whole idea is that only in the last 30 to 40 years have we had a militarized border with all of these problems. But it's because the border is militarized that we have the problems, not the other way around. The vast majority of United States history, we've had a demilitarized border or it wasn't even militarized to begin with. Explain demilitarized- that,
0: Levi. Sure. Why is that the problem? That's not creating the, the migrant
1: crisis. Sure, I think actually in, in many ways it it is. so when you start to believe that migrants are the problem and they're scary and they're bad, you pay a lot more attention to them and then you build a lot more walls, you employ a lot more police. Um, And so there's a certain kind of attention that then becomes perpetuated in a media cycle. That actually is is a lot of hysteria, I think. Um, The fact of the matter is that the U.S.-Mexico border has always been crossed by many, many people throughout its history, but it's only in the last few decades that we've suddenly decided that this is a bad and terrible and scary thing. But the the solution to the problem is simply to demilitarize the border, not to uh, continue to put more police and immigration officials there. It's essentially now a functioning army on the border. And so the death and the... And the misery that's, that exists there, exists there because it's a war zone and we've we've made it a war zone.
0: But if we do away with all that, with all the security, then some people might say, well, that would simply allow migrants for whatever reason from Honduras, from Guatemala, from Peru, from Mexico to come over the border and that it will become a border that anyone can cross. Is that something that you're in support of? Is that realistic? And in- in any kind of conceivable way?
1: I think it's incredibly realistic to demilitarize the border because, again, it for the vast majority of our country's history, it was not militarized to begin with. But I think that we see a vast influx of immigrants from Central America currently in the United States because there is a long history of military intervention and economic exploitation within these countries. Um, the civil wars in places like Guatemala and El Salvador were explicitly funded by the U.S. uh, government um, as a kind of proxy war to fight things, scary things like communism or socialism, right? But in reality, what they're trying to do is open up new markets for U.S. corporations. Now we are reaping the benefits of what we've sown over the last 30, 40, 50 years in these countries, which is deep, brutal violence that has not helped the people of these countries. So they have to flee. If we would like to you know, reduce uh, migrant flows to the US, then I think what we need to do is stop interfering militarily and economically in these countries. And I think more people would stay.
0: Is that politically viable, though, Levi? I think even you know that it isn't. I mean, it's all very well saying this, and and maybe it makes some sense in a a broader historical manner. But the reality is that Even people on the left of the Democratic Party in the U.S. are not in favor of an open border.
1: Well, I mean, I I, what I deeply believe in is that we are in a time of unprecedented things happening in the world. It seems almost impossible that the world will have some kind of climate or ecological collapse. But that's what we're saying will happen very soon. Right. We're at a moment where we have to rethink fundamentally how the world works and operates. And as climate change continues to occur, as places in Central America, people have um, their crops destroyed because of climate change, their world is ending, they can't live in their homes in the same way anymore, and they are leaving Central America, not just because of gang violence, not just because of poverty, but now because of climate change. And so we're militarizing this border in order to stop them from coming to the US, partly in anticipation, these democratic and republican presidencies are militarizing the border because they anticipate more people will be leaving because of climate change but i'm saying that if we can conceive of something like our world ending because of climate change but we can't conceive of demilitarizing your own border we've lost the plot completely
0: well if you want to not lose the plot. If you want to understand what's really happening, at least according to Levi Vonk and his co-author Axel Kirchner, you need to read this new book. It's a very adventurous book, a very ambitious book, Border Hacker, A Tale of Treachery, Trafficking and Two Friends on the Run. It's quite an achievement, Levi. Congratulations. Thank you so Uh, much. What else uh, have you been reading recently? Anything interesting in addition to Border Hacker? What books are on your bedside table?
1: Yeah. So I have a couple right here. Um, I have two, um, women Mexican authors. Uh, the first is Fernanda Melchor and she's written a book called paradise or paradise in English. Uh, Fernanda Melchor is being translated into English in the U S now. She's one of the most celebrated and widely read Mexican authors currently in Mexico. And her books are amazing. They're about misogyny and violence and femicide in Mexico incredibly poignant and urgent message right now um, against some of the violence that people are experiencing, not only in Mexico, but also in the US as well. And the second is uh, another young female author named Cleo Mendoza. Her book is called Furia or Fury in English. Again, a very urgent um, and timely critique of misogyny and violence occurring um, in rural Mexico generally.
0: Well, for timeliness, nothing compares, I think, to Levi Vonk's first new book, uh, Border Hacker, The Tale of Treachery, Trafficking, and Two Friends on the Run. He wrote it with Axel Kirshner, his co-conspirator, his friend, um, uh, in in this remarkable story of uh, Central American caravans. Congratulations again, Levi. I hope it's the first of many books. Um, Thank you. Final question for you as, an, uh, as a young anthropologist um, who is... Spent time looking and experiencing Central America. Who runs the world, Levi Vonk? Who's in charge in early May 2022?
1: Exactly who we think it is. It's the Democratic Party. It's U.S. corporations. And if we want to change the world, they're the very people we need to be going to and demanding change from.